The scripture reading for today, um, we are accomplishing uh, the last bit of John's chapter 1. And I think we have the wrong scriptures on the screens, and we saw that in the plan today. So you might just want to turn the, the screens off. But if you'd like to follow along, you're going to look for John chapter 1, verse 35, and I'm going to take you through the rest of the chapter. We feel that it's a great celebration in our lives that we're completing all of John chapter 1 in only seven weeks of preaching. We're quite proud of ourselves. About that. Only 20 chapters left after today. And we're looking forward to working through that with you. The scripture goes as follows. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed him, Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael said, Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree when Philip called to you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I saw you under the fig tree? You will see much greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of God uh, for this day. Uh, Meditate upon it, cherish it, listen to what it says to you, let us pray. God, we thank you for this word that comes to us and we ask that as this scripture prescribes that the angels will be seen descending and ascending on the Son of Man, we ask that this very congregation sees your spirit descend and ascend on this man of yours, Keith, our preacher. Bless him today, Lord, as he speaks you to us. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm excited to wrap up John chapter 1 today, not because I'm ready to see it over, but because I love this story of John the Baptist coming to this this revelation of who Jesus is. And if if you were paying attention last week, which I'm sure all of you were, uh, you notice that the beginning text from last week is a lot like the beginning text for, for this week. It starts with John the Baptist basically having the same idea and making the same, same statement. He says in verse 29 last week, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You remember that, right? John the Baptist comes to this realization after he baptizes uh, Jesus, he, he sees this 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 spirit of, of, 
of God descend upon Jesus and he's, he's aware now of Jesus' role as the Lamb of God. And he, I don't know if he went back and, and read his Old Testament uh, Torah, if he read about Jesus or if he read about Abraham and Isaac and God providing the Lamb for the sacrifice or if he read about the Passover from Exodus. And he makes this connection that while the priests were sacrificing lambs every day for sins, that Jesus becomes the Lamb. For sin, but not just the sin of the Jewish community, but the sin of the entire world, and it rocks John the Baptist's world. Well, he he sees Jesus again the next day, and this time John's with his disciples, and he looks at Jesus, and then he looks at his disciples, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, these disciples hear this, and it says they immediately follow Jesus. Well, they come to Jesus and they say, where are you staying? And Jesus looks at them and he asks, well, what do you want? Great question to ask Jesus, right? Well, what they want is time with him. So they go and they spend an afternoon with Jesus. And it's what happens during this meeting that I think sets the stage for everything else that happens in these men's lives. Because they emerge from this meeting telling everybody about Jesus. They emerge from this meeting convinced that they have found the Messiah. So really there's four things that I want to talk about as we see John's disciples begin to transfer their their discipleship over to Jesus. And the first one is this, that John exalts Jesus to his own disciples. See, John had disciples too, as did a lot of rabbis. But John was not interested in creating his own kingdom John was not interested in building his own following. What John was interested in was getting his followers to become his followers. To take the ones that followed John and turn them to Jesus because that was the role that God had given John. His role was not to be the Messiah, not to be the prophet, but instead to make paths for the Lord, make way the path of the Lord, to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And now that he was convinced... That Jesus was the Messiah. And I'll say for now, because you're going to see later in John's gospel, that there became some moments in John the Baptist's life where he wasn't sure anymore. And you'll read about that later where he sends disciples to Jesus. Because even though John became convinced of Jesus' Messiahship, he wasn't always 100% sure of that later. And you'll, you'll see more of that as we move on. Because I'll tell you what, it's an adventure that these guys go on. I'm getting sidetracked here. Pastor Mike says, hey, that's not what you said at the other service. Stay on track. (laughs) Notice that when John sees Jesus, he doesn't begin to have an argument with his disciples. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you everything why I believe this way. He simply points them to Jesus with this title, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He announces the redeeming character of Jesus. Now, this title, Lamb of God, you know, is used very, very seldom in the Gospels. But in the, in the book of Revelation, of course, which was given to John, the same writer, Jesus refers to himself in that book as the Lamb of God no less than 28 times. He calls himself the Lamb of God. I think that Jesus, that's his favorite title for himself because he wants all of us to be aware of his redemptive power And understand that the essence of evangelism for John 
and for the Gospels is simply to announce the redeeming power of Jesus. It's not to win arguments. It's not to become harsh and argumentative and combative. It's simply to point people to Jesus and announce his redeeming character. Now, secondly here is you'll notice that some of John's disciples are called by Jesus immediately or later, but some follow him immediately. Now, this might be kind of a nuanced thing as you read this. You might kind of just glance over this and say, okay, well, he's talking to Andrew, he's talking to Peter, he's talking to to these guys. But if you read the other Gospels, you see a slightly different or a radically different uh, call of discipleship to guys like Peter. Now, many of you have read Matthew 4 where Jesus is is walking along the, the Sea of Galilee and he looks out, and there's Simon and his brother, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're fishing with their father. And what does Jesus do? He calls them. He says, drop your nets, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And it says that they immediately dropped their nets and followed Jesus. And it was that moment that they became his full-time disciples. Well, doing some studying in this this week, I determined uh, that that moment in Matthew is about a calendar year after this moment in John chapter 1. It's about a year later, after Jesus meets Peter, that he actually becomes his full-time disciple. And I think that what that points us to is that there are many layers of discipleship, aren't there? There are many experiences that you can have in your life from when you become convinced of Jesus being the Messiah before he might completely wreck your life and everything that you had planned. You know, think about your own life for a moment, you know. When did you first become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah Versus when you came into God's plan for your life to change everything. I know for myself, you know, I I grew up in the church. So I I was convinced early on that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what I was always taught. And and once I became about 11, 12 years old and could could come to that belief on my own, I, I became convinced of that. But it wasn't until many years later where God began to to unveil his calling on my life and what he had me to do. Of course, I still didn't have any clue what it was going to mean. But there's layers to our discipleship, isn't there? There's layers to when we come to know who Jesus is. And then for some of us, it's all right now. Bam. And I know people certainly in that situation called to follow Jesus and instantly they're ready to become preachers or missionaries or whatever God would call them to be. But for others of us, it's more of a gradual call into full-time discipleship. Now, you could argue, well, was Peter a disciple before that moment? I would say he was. He was a disciple. But he hadn't left everything to follow Jesus. The call was different. There are many layers of one's call to discipleship. Thirdly, recognize this, that bringing people to Jesus is part of discipleship. Bringing people to Jesus is is what it means to be a disciple. You see, it's not something that's an optional course in discipleship. It's a fruit of a personal relationship with Jesus, if you hadn't noticed that. See, these men come to Jesus and they say, we want to know where you're staying. They spend an afternoon with him and I wonder what the conversation looked like. I wonder what they talked about. If Jesus opened up the Old Testament scriptures and, and, and explained things to them, whatever it was, after just a few short moments with Jesus, these men came out fully convinced and the first thing they did, if you notice was go and tell somebody. The first thing they did was to go and share. Andrew goes and he shares with his brother. 
And he says, we have found the Messiah. Now, how unlikely would that have been? How strange would that have been to say hundreds of years, thousands of years, the Jews awaited the Messiah. And after just one afternoon with this carpenter, Jesus from Nazareth, these men emerged from that conversation convinced that he was the real deal. So they brought their friends. They brought their family and recognized that as a disciple, that should be part of your life as well. As a disciple, bringing people to Jesus, it's just what you do. It's the fruit of discipleship. Now, I know for a lot of us, we, get, we can come to church, we can do a lot of things, we can give, we can serve, but this is the place where a lot of us get tripped up, isn't it? Because we don't know what we're supposed to do half the time, do we? I mean, in our secular culture, that's supposed to be a Christian culture. We, we, we're unsure what that means and how to tell somebody about Jesus. So for some of us, that means that we convince them that they have to be a particular political persuasion. For some, it means that we have to have this particular social agenda. You know, and we're trying to convert people into this way or to that way. But notice what these men do is simply this. They just bring people to Jesus. Notice what John does. He simply shares the redeeming quality of Jesus. You see, we've been brought up with this idea that our faith is supposed to be a personal matter, right? And I agree with that 100%. Your faith should be personal. If it's not personal, it's not really a faith, is it? But somehow along the way, we've convinced ourselves that personal means private, And I want to tell you, the two are not the same. To have a personal faith does not mean that that personal faith is kept to oneself in a private way. Now, because we're human beings, we tend to live in extremes, don't we? And we've all seen plenty of examples of people who have taken their personal faith and used it as a weapon against other people or used it as a way to to be domineering or harsh with others. And I don't think that's what we've seen in any of these texts, is it? We never see Jesus or his disciples going into a community and using faith as as a way to be harsh with others. We see it as a way to, to help others and to serve and to heal and to share. Now, people don't always respond very well, do they? Even to Jesus. But I want to encourage you in this with the question, who are you bringing to Jesus? Where has your time with Jesus yielded the fruit of evangelism? It's part of your discipleship. And if you're stressing out about it, if you're convinced that you're ill-equipped to do it, or you don't know the right words to say, or you, you don't know relationally how to walk that line, I understand what you mean. But let me just take some of the pressure off of you in this experience. God isn't looking for you to save anybody, okay? That's God's job. God is the one who does the saving. But what he's looking for you to do is to share who he is with those around you. Is to share your experience. Is to share what you've come to believe about Jesus. Don't get into arguments or debates. Simply let your faith, your personal faith, speak for itself in your life. Because that is one of the core components of discipleship. I mean, we say it around here all the time. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. How can we make disciples of Jesus Christ if we never tell anybody about Jesus Christ? 
Make no mistake about it. Discipleship includes social justice issues and, 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 and serving the poor, but never divorced from the message of the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that foundational fundamental truth is the center of our discipleship, as is sharing that truth. Because understand this, and this is number four, guys, Jesus can change anyone, anyone who comes to him. He can change anyone who comes to him. Notice what he does to Simon. He changes his name to Peter. He looks at him and he says, you are, I know you've lived your whole life referring to yourself as Simon, but you're Peter, which means rock, of course. And we see in Matthew, of course, how Jesus takes that, that play on words and he founds the church upon the statement of faith given by this rock, Peter. See, when Jesus looks at a person, he doesn't see them the way that we look at a person or the way that even they look at themselves. Jesus sees them through his own eyes and he knows the change that can take place in a person's life before they even consider it. Jesus can change anyone. He looked at Peter and saw him in a way that Peter could never see himself. He took Peter, and you know a lot about Peter, perhaps. He was a brash and loudmouthed fisherman who was impulsive, who was violent, who reacted instead of thought his way through situations. And he took this man and made him the foundation of the church. It was in the book of Acts when Peter gets up and preaches this amazing sermon in which 3,000 people become converted to Christ, that the rest of the crowd looks to, who are these guys? These guys are a bunch of redneck hillbillies. Keith's paraphrase there. They're uneducated fishermen. These are guys that don't know about things. These are guys that are unschooled, uncultured, unread. And look at what they're saying. Look at what Jesus can do. Last night, you know, for Valentine's Day, my wife and I, we went out to dinner, but we didn't go by ourselves. We went with a couple of friends of ours. And the people we went with were our old friends. And I don't mean old in terms of chronological years. I mean old in terms of a lot of history. And the history behind this, this, this friendship is that the, the young man and his wife, well, the, the young man's name's Mike. And I first met Mike probably about 15 years ago when he walked through the door of, uh, of our church in Davenport where I was the youth leader. And I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting inside the church, the hallway, and I hear this loud, arrogant, brash, 17-year-old kid. You know anybody like that, by the way? Who, who storms in the door and says to his friend, Well, I don't know how I let you bring me here. This is stupid. I don't know what I'm doing here. This is dumb. And just began to just kind of like, you know, loudly and brag. I mean, I thought that was great. You know, church ladies were getting done with choir and everything. And here comes this 17-year-old kid, which later, last night he confessed to me that he was completely high on marijuana at the time when he walked in the door. Of course, we weren't surprised. And, and you know, ah, just, just bashing the place right as he walked in. And I remember sitting there watching this guy walk by, and I kind of recognized who he was. He was a football player, big kind of burly guy. I'm thinking to myself, there's a part of me that wants to get up and tackle him. Put him in his place, right? And there's another part of me that said, Lord, I wonder what you'd do with this young man. I wonder what you'd do with him. I wonder why you brought him here tonight. Because you know what I believe? This is just me, but I believe that everybody that comes here, God brings them. 
Okay? And I think that's scriptural, and I think that's experiential. I think that when someone comes in, my question oftentimes, why did God bring you here today? What would God do? And I thought to myself, I wonder what's going to happen with this young man. Well, of course, he came in and did his thing. Well, it wasn't long after. I remember, I think it was maybe two weeks later, two Wednesdays, because he came back the next Wednesday. And then I think it was the following Wednesday where I saw him on his knees with tears streaming down his face, giving his heart to Jesus. And I thought, I wonder what God would do with young Mike. Well, Mike's had some zigs and zags in his life, and I've kind of been there for those to help him through them. And my wife's been there uh, with his wife through some of their, their, their zigs and zags. And, and I remember phone calls from Mike saying, I just want to do what God wants me to do in my life, but no one will give me a chance. And Pastor Mike Morgan, of course, knows this young man too and has been on the other end of that phone conversation where he said, Hey, I'm applying for this job in this church. Would you be my reference? And, of course, we said, sure, Mike. And then I get the phone call. Oh, I didn't get the job. I'm just going to go work construction. And then I get another phone call. Hey, I think I'm going to try for the same job again two years later. And, of course, I didn't get the job. And then I got a phone call. Hey, I'm applying for this, this job. Would you be a reference? Sure, Mike, no problem. I still have your file. I still have your letter. Save it in my computer. I'll send it right now. And then I got the phone call. I got the job. And I've never met somebody so excited to get hired, really for peanuts, as a part-time youth director in a downtown denominational Methodist church in Muscatine, Iowa, right? Never met somebody so excited to walk into that situation, a traditional old-school Methodist church that doesn't have a lot going on in their youth program, and they bring this rookie in to do something. I'm looking at this going, oh my gosh, there's going to be a lot of phone calls on this one for sure. And there have been. But last night as we sat with, with, with Mike and his wife Mariah and we had conversations and, and she's firing questions at Estelle and Mike's, you know, talking, you know, I, I just thought to myself, wow, my mind was taken back. And that night of him walking in, what am I doing here? This is stupid. And saying, you know what? Praise God. He can change anybody. He can change anybody. Who is it in your life right now that you look at and think there's no way God could change that person? They might have the hardest heart. They might be so stuck in their ways and so hostile toward the gospel that you could never in a million years imagine that they could follow Jesus. I don't want you to to, to give up on them. And and Jesus doesn't want you to give up on them either because guess what? He hasn't given up on them. I bet everybody gave up on Peter. But when Andrew, his brother, met Jesus, he said, you've got to come check this out. We found him. We found the Messiah. And then, of course, Jesus' plans for you are beyond anything that you can imagine. You see, just like Andrew was brought his brother Simon, it says that Philip was found by Jesus. And as soon as Philip hears about Jesus, he finds Nathanael. And he goes and he says to Nathanael, we have found him him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And here's what Philip says. Not some sort of, of argument. Not some sort of, of, of you know, trying to, to be eloquent and speak. He simply says this to him. Come and see. Come and see. So he comes and Jesus looks at Nathaniel and he says, Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael is blown away that Jesus knows who he is and knows about him. And he says, how did you know me, Jesus? And Jesus says, while you were sitting under that fig tree, I saw you and I knew you. And immediately, like, Nathanael like, flips out. And he says, you are the son of God. You, you are it. You are the real deal. And Jesus kind of probably, you know, laughs a little bit to himself and says, are you serious? That's why you're going to follow me? That's nothing compared to what you're going to see. He says, I tell you the truth, Nathaniel. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, of course, that's a reference to, you know, Jacob's ladder, that story in, in the Old Testament of Jacob seeing this ladder from heaven and angels descending and ascending. And, and, and you know, Jesus says, you're going to see that on the Son of Man, identifying himself as the bridge between heaven and earth. Pretty amazing. You see, Philip, also called Nathaniel, you know, or, or Philip's brother Nathaniel, his friend Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, had no idea what following Jesus was going to mean to him. Jesus said, you're going to see a lot greater things than this. And the things he would see and the things that would happen to him were the result of his discipleship. Now, you're looking at this statue here, this picture of Nathaniel, also referred to as Bartholomew. Let me, let me just kind of share with you what the meaning behind that is. You probably can't see it too well, uh, but let me just kind of get into a little bit of what happens to, to Nathaniel here. Because we don't really see a whole lot in Scripture where what happens to him. But following Jesus' ascension into heaven as the church begins, we have other historical record of Bartholomew, Nathaniel, and he goes by the same name, of what happens in his life. There's a text uh, written by a man named Eusebius of Caesarea who wrote a book called Ecclesiastical History. And it states that after the ascension of Jesus, that Nathaniel took a trip, a missionary tour to India, where he left behind a copy of the Gospel of Matthew. And of course, he also went into Ethiopia, Mesopotamia, Parthia, and into what's now greater Armenia. And two ancient texts uh, exist about this trip. And they describe when he becomes uh, a person who goes to Armenia, how he founds the church there. And there's, to this day, a monastery in, in Armenia dedicated to, to uh, Bartholomew and his fellow apostle Jude, who went with him. And both saints are considered the patron saints of the, the Armenian Apostolic Church. Now, here's where that statue comes in, Okay. When I was in Rome a few years ago, I went to a place called St. John Lateran. It's the church uh, with these huge statues, as probably most churches in Rome have, you know, as you discover if you ever go there. And I saw these statues, and there were 12 of them, each of them of one of, of the disciples. And in each statue, the disciples were carrying something, and each one was different. One had a sword. One had a spear. One had a saw. One had a cross. 
And then one had this kind of weird thing going on of a, of a man that looked like he was carrying some kind of robe. But I don't know if you can tell from the picture, he doesn't look like everyone else. He kind of looks like a weird zombie. So what is that? And if you look a little bit closer, you can see that he has no skin. And then you start to look and say, what is it that he's carrying? Well, these are thousands of years old, these statues. Well, each disciple in the statue is carrying the instrument of their martyrdom. Some were beheaded. Some were crucified. Some were, were speared. Some were sawn in half. Well, Bartholomew was flayed alive, skinned alive, and then crucified by the king's brother in Armenia. Because the king became a Christian. And it made his brother mad. Now you ask the question. What is the cost of discipleship? You ask the question. What can God do in a person's life? Look at the disciples. And the deaths that they died. And then ask yourself. Would you have gone that way? And I would say to you this. They wouldn't have traded it for anything. Because of the lives that they lived. To follow Jesus. See, Jesus looked at Nathaniel under that fig tree and he said, You will see greater things than this. You see, when you choose to follow Jesus, his plans for you are beyond anything that you can possibly imagine. His plan for your life is more than you could possibly imagine. And as the result of that, I would say that his plans for your death could be more than you could possibly imagine. Because when you follow Jesus into discipleship, He sees your life in a new way. He's not content to leave you the same way and have the same old existence that you had before. He'll call you into amazing things and it might cost you everything. But I guarantee you, when you see Bartholomew in heaven one day and you ask him, does he have any regrets? He's going to look at you and say, are you kidding me? I got to sit with Jesus. I got to follow him. I got to know of his redeeming power. I got to be changed by him. It was worth anything that I had to pay. It was worth even my own skin. Would you say the same? Is your discipleship so central to your life and so life-changing that no matter what it costs you, no matter what it means for you, You'd still follow him. That, that's a different gospel, isn't it, than the your best life now become rich and famous gospel of God wants to bless you and give you prosperity and health and wealth and make your life awesome. That's the American gospel, isn't it? That, they don't show that, right, on the TV preaching. They don't say follow Jesus in, in, into death. But I'll tell you what, before Nathaniel went to death, he certainly went to life, didn't he? And he is indeed crossed from death into life, and that is the call of discipleship. See, John the Baptist saw him come, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You must follow Jesus to his disciples, and you'll see this in chapter 3. He says, I must decrease, he must increase. It's not about me. It's not about what I believe. It's not about following me. It's about following Jesus. And we as disciples must make sure that in our evangelism, in our discipleship, we are never calling people to be like us or to follow us, but rather instead always pointing them to him. So may we do so here today.
Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for this time of, 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 of worship and this time of leaning into your word. God, may our time with you yield these results as well. May we follow you into everything you'd have for us, knowing that you can change anyone and that you will. God, may we see mighty acts of salvation, mighty miracles. And may we follow you straight into it, no matter what it costs. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Have a look at this video. Well, what brought Kelly and I here originally was we were looking for youth programs for our kids. And then we met Stan Wearson. And uh, always thought nobody could ever take Stan's place, yet every pastor that's been here since Stan has just been fabulous. Uh, So the the leadership of the church, and then of course we, we found a great church family. All the people here are just fabulous. Kelly and I both realize that everything we have comes from God, so we're big believers in tithing and uh, giving to our church family and, and with our time and our, our finances, and we, we believe that's the right thing to do. My name is Brad Ahern, and these are the reasons that I give to Marion Methodist. Will you please join me in worshiping God this way? Will the ushers please come forward?